Welcome to Yella Mensa, exploring cross-centered contextual justice in the South African context. Yella Mensa is a ministry of Isabambano, Center for Biblical Justice. I am your host, David Kluter. Unfortunately, John couldn't join us today, but I have amazing people in the studio. Guys, one of the things we want to do more as Yella Mensa and Isabambano, more broadly, we wanted to do this in 2020, was to focus not only on deconstructing and uh, critiquing uh, many of the injustices in our society and churches, uh, which needed deconstructing, but also to shine a light on stories of hope. Stories of, of Christians as well as Christian organization uh, driven by their faith to imagine a different future and scenario for the South African context. Stories of Christians uh, demonstrating intangible ways, uh, creative uh, ways to express themselves or that the kingdom of God, of Jesus Christ, is actually broken in, in the now. That's the kind of thing that we wanted to, to do this year. But unfortunately, unfortunately, as we all know, COVID-19 happened and 2020, the rest is history, isn't it? Uh, and so despite the pain and the struggles that 2020 has brought, we want to bring you uh, what I think Brueggemann puts it beautifully. Uh, he calls it a prophetic imagination. And we want to we wanna explore what that would look like as we explore stories of context, stories of hope. The journey of new hope is one of those stories. Um, the journey of new hope in 2020 has been one of those Phenomenal stories today. Uh, we want to welcome our guest uh, on the program, uh, Richard Borland. Uh, he's a member, he's a founding member and a, and, and a board member of New Hope. And with him today, we have Rudy and we have Michael. These guys are, are residents of New Hope uh, House. Uh, I want to say welcome to you guys. Welcome to Yellow Mensa. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for, for yeah, letting us be on the show. Uh, perhaps as we as we get into our conversation, would you guys introduce yourselves? Tell us a bit about yourselves, and if need be, uh, if appropriate, can you sh share with us your faith journey as well? I I'll start with you, uh, Richard. I am married to a, a wonderful woman called Layla, and we have um, we have a son and a soon to be another son. And it was about 10, 11 years ago where. I started my journey working with people who found themselves on the streets. Um, I started volunteering at the Haven uh, Night Shelter in Weinberg. And since then have been kind of developing what we know as New Hope now. But it kind of started quite organically. Uh, by day, I work as an animator and run my own animation studio. And kind of in my spare time, I, I help to manage uh, New Hope. Um, I, uh, my name is Rudy. I am originally from Elsie's River. I, I found myself taking like the wrong turns in life, you know, got involved in, 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 in addiction and all that kind of stuff. So I, I ended up um, not being able to keep a job. So I ended up being unemployed and then ended up on the street. And that is where, where I started going to, to different soup kitchens and Found myself going to St. Peter's uh, in Mowbray, where I um, was a community member, part, part of the community dinners that they had on, on Thursday nights. And that is where I met um, um, Richard. And yeah, and now I'm here now. <laughs> <laughs> well, fast forward like four years and I'm here. That's fantastic, wow. man. Thanks, Rudy. Good afternoon. My name is Michael. Uh, born and raised in Weinberg, worked at Somerset Hospital for 21 years. Was married, my wife has passed on. I also ended up homeless. And uh, this is always not easy for me to talk about. I can already feel my emotions coming up. 
Uh, when my wife passed away, I met her at Somerset Hospital, and we were married for many years. And after the burial, about a week or two after the burial, the family came to me and they told me, you know, Michael, this is not your house and it's time for you to move on now, knowing I had nowhere to go after all the years of marriage. And uh, that's how I ended up in the street. That's where I met Richard. Uh, We were discussing earlier on how long I come on with the New Hope organization. I've known Richard for many years now. Good to have you guys here. Thank you so much. For joining us in Yellow Mensa. And I, and I guess part of Yellow Mensa is to tell our stories, isn't it? There's a new, unique story, and John will tell you all about uh, the, new, the new, unique story behind the name Yellow Mensa. But I think part of that story in terms of Yellow Mensa is also telling our story because we, we are Mensa and we all have a story to tell. Uh, Richard, I want to I start with you. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, New Hope, how it began and the journey so far? Sure. So as I said, the journey kind of started when I was volunteering at the Weinberg Haven and I was there for quite a number of, of years. Um, and then we decided to start a community moment where instead of just going out with a pot of food and feeding people, we would take out like a pot of food and eat it with people. Um, and that was the key difference, I think, that New Hope kind of was birthed from. I remember clearly sitting at Kenilworth train station sharing a meal with, with the same guys week in and week out. And one week we decided to, to say, hey, why don't this week you guys cook for us? I remember having this, it was this Rick Coffee tin that was sitting on top of a burning plastic crate. And in that Rick Coffee tin was boiling water with some bones that had been bought from, from ShopRite. And that night we had this delicious bone broth for dinner that was cooked by a guy staying on the streets. And that was always quite a significant moment for me where we saw the full circle completing and us both transforming and benefiting from this interaction. And from there, um, our kind of ministry grew. We had people that joined us. Um, We started another similar community dinner in Mowbray, just in Mowbray Park. And it was through there that we met four guys who really wanted to get off the streets. They, they, they hadn't been on the streets for long and they wanted to desperately get off. And so we phoned around a couple of the night shelters and found a shelter in Kensington who could accommodate all four of them. That was on a Thursday, which we phoned. And on the Friday, we dropped all four guys off there. And because we had such an amazing friendship with these guys, we didn't want to just end it there. And so we decided to start on, a, on another night. So Tuesday nights, then we were going into the shelter and meeting meeting with the guys and continuing and, and then meeting with many more guys. And then on Thursday nights, we would remain on the streets, eating food with people, encouraging them to move into shelters where appropriate. And that's how New Hope operated for quite a while. It was around 2016, 2017 was when one of our guys just got kept getting kicked out of the shelter because of his drug use and we said to ourselves we really needed to actually just find a way for someone to get into into rehab the cheapest rehab we could find was basically five thousand rand a month and so we did this big fundraiser we raised enough money and he got into rehab from that point onwards we knew that we needed finances in order to keep what we're doing going and so we then officially formed an ngo 
And then a year or two later, got PBO registered. New Hope then hired two social workers. That's how we kept going. Um, I'm sure we'll get into it a bit later, how New Hope transformed during lockdown. That's, that's kind of where we were at, assisting people in shelters, on the street and in rehabs from about 2012 all the way through to 2018, where we became official. Why don't you share a little bit about that story, how lockdown is, has affected the move and the challenges as it brought and how is that made you guys transition and reinvent things and had to think about things more differently. So before lockdown, we, we had four beneficiaries in the New Hope program and we used various different uh, service providers, different rehabs, different shelters, and we would make sure that someone doesn't fall out of the system, that they go from uh, a shelter to a rehab or a rehab to a shelter. Lockdown hit and we just saw that people were going to struggle. We knew that money was going to dry up on the streets. We knew that food was going to dry up on the streets. We had heard of uh, the city opening up this mega homeless camp. And we said to ourselves, we just can't let the people that we know, the people that are in our community um, suffer more than what they're currently suffering. And so we approached St. Peter's Church, which is a church that my wife and I are going to. We said to them, hey, you know, we know a lot of these people, they're from our Thursday night community. It's an extension of our church. What can we do to, to change this narrative? We put in front of them a kind of plan to use the church hall to accommodate 10 people. And they accepted after a few meetings. They, they said, cool, we can go for it. And a microsite was born out of St. Peter's Church Hall. And we had 10 people sleeping in the hall. We had a wonderful set of volunteers who came on board. We had people financially backing us. And that's where Rudy joined us in that stage of the microsite, mainly because I'd visited the Strandfontein homeless camp and had met him there. We got him transferred from the camp to the microsite. I want Michael and Rudy to share their story. But before that, I think it's important for us just to lay the ground because you have guys like me who just recently have been reading your story, went on the site, just looked up some, some articles and things that you guys have been doing. Can you explain to us what is a microsite and what are some of the challenges that you had to just set that up? A microsite legally is something under 20 people. As soon as you get over 20 people, you have to get them a population certificate and there needs to be the right safety precautions put in place. There are quite a lot of families in Cape Town who have 10 people staying under one roof. There's nothing yeah. one needs to legally set up in order to have 10 people in one house. Obviously, one needs the space for people to feel comfortable, but that's essentially just what a microsite is. It's a place where two to 20 people can, can live in temporarily until they are able to get to a place where another opportunity becomes available, whether it's a shelter or rehab or a different house. And then the idea is that it's localized. It's a place where the community can get involved in supporting and the people living in the microsite can engage with the community. I think that's very important that microsites are not these isolated islands. They are part of a suburb. They're part of a community. It's imperative that, that the community is involved in order for it to be a success. Otherwise, it's going to be what most people experience on the street, which is, you know, alienation, isolation, people who are cast out from society rather than included in society. And that's, that's why we try to be um, a community which was inclusive and invited people in rather than pushing people away. 
Rudy, I, w- I would like you to start. Can you just share with us what is it, your experience? What has it been like living at this particular microsite? And just some key moments, maybe some things that just stood out for you in your journey with New Hope. David, I I got I got involved with New Hope um, from, as I told you, from the St. Peter's dinners when Richard offered to like assist me in in going to rehab. I remember him giving me the the, the medical certificates to actually go to the doctor and before you go. To, to rehab, you need to have a medical certificate and that kind of stuff. I ended up giving the, the certificate or the, 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 the forms to someone else because I felt that person needs it more than me because I thought I didn't really, I wasn't really ready to go to, to rehab at the time. So um, a friend of mine then um, went to go and visit um, St. Peter's and he went to rehab and two years later, I decided um, I couldn't go any, any, any longer. Um, I really need to go to rehab. Richard was still able to, to assist me with that. Then I went to rehab and I think it cost quite a lot of money, which I couldn't afford and I didn't have. Um, so I was, I was able to go to an inpatient rehab for three months. After that, I came out, uh, out of rehab. Uh, unfortunately, a year and a half after um, I left the rehab. In other words, I was like a year, uh, about 18 months clean. And then I relapsed. So what happened then was that I, I, I was a bit um, ashamed, so I didn't go back to the, to the tennis anymore. I kind of h- hide away from, from Richard and team at New York because, because of my shame, you know. I, was, I found myself back on the street again as well. You know, things got worse because um, I, was, I was using a lot more than what I used before I went to rehab. So things got like totally out of, out of control for me. And I was kind of very fast killing myself. Um, and then, then lockdown happened. I, I found myself going to, to, to Strandfontein because I was, told, I was told that I was going to get the necessary um, medical attention and, and they're going to help me with this. So I thought to myself, okay, fine. This is probably my best way to start getting some clean time um, to get some momentum and, and not using because at least I would have some medical assistance there. Um, that, that is what I was told. Unfortunately, when I got to, 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 to Strandfontein, I, I never got the, the medical attention that, that, that I actually that I was promised and that kind of thing. Um, basically cold turkey, in other words, I, I, I would draw without any medication and that kind of stuff. It was, it was terrible, it was hard, I thought it was going to die. But the conditions at Strandfontein as well was of, of such a... It, it was actually horrible um, in the beginning. We had, in the, in, the, in the tent that I was in, there was close to 500 people and I was number 331. I was part of a whole lot of other people and, and I felt very lost. I felt very scared. I also had a, a got also got like some, some, some kind of other chronic disease, um, um, which I, which I didn't have med- medical attention at the time. Um, it was only like a week after that, that I got medical attention for that. As I was withdrawing, I, I couldn't go to the toilet without making myself wet, that kind of stuff. So I, I, I got very weak and I was like kind of just like lying there. Um, but I wasn't the only one. There was a lot of other people as well that was going through bad experiences. I remember when I just got there, they told me that there was a, a guy that died the night before. And his body was lying there the whole day, basically. In the, in the tent that I was, there was um, people that were mentally disabled. So they basically didn't know what was going on around them. They were wetting themselves. They were 
They were um, not able to go to stand in the queue to get food and that kind of thing. So a lot of them went out of food for, for some time. Some, some of the people had to, to, to help others out at the time. Um, and then there was also like uh, disabled people um, with us. In, so we had young people, people that were was withdrawing. There were people that were mentally disabled all in one camp. And there was like close to 500 of us. So it wasn't a very nice experience. And I kind of started praying because I knew that's probably the way out now because it was almost like you were in a concentration camp. Not that I've ever been in a con concentration camp, but that it felt to me like that. And we, we kind of started praying and that kind of thing. And then, then I saw Richard one day come walking through through one of the tents. He asked me um, how I was doing and, and if I knew anyone there. But I, I, was, I was kind of weak, so I didn't really know anyone because... Um, it was still my early days of, of, of withdrawing. Then he disappeared again, you know. I didn't know anything um, about the microsite or anything. Um, a couple of days after that, a security guard was looking for me. Um, I just heard someone screaming my name 10 times. And, and then I finally went to um, the security and he told me that there's a phone call for me. And I couldn't understand where does this phone call come from, you know. So I went to the center management and they, they told me that there's a guy on the phone from New York that wants to give me a place. And I thought to myself, but New York doesn't really have a place. But the thing is, I know Richard from, from the past. I knew Richard and New York from the past. So without him explaining to me what, what he was busy with, I already agreed that he must just come and get me out of there because I didn't want to be there anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't take what was going on there anymore. So Richard came to fetch me. Yeah, but he also struggled to get me out because I needed to have a medical clearance. I need to have um, have been tested before I could get out of the Strandfontein camp. However, the people in Strandfontein didn't test us. They only gave us like a, a what do you call it? An observation, like they just asked you questions. We didn't really get tested. And then I had to wait for another three days and then Richard arranged a private test for me which um, Neo paid for. But the day when, when Richard actually came to fetch me, they didn't really want him to come into the place. They basically thought that he was a, a reporter. When I arrived at the, at the microsite, I went into quarantine. And that was probably the best time that I had. I was treated with what I think is, um, I was like almost treated like a celebrity, you know. Um, because my experience at Strandfontein and this new other experience that I that I had here with 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 Neo was was so big because at Strandfontein I basically felt that I wasn't human and in at and when I got to to the to the microsite I was treated like a human being again during during my time at at the microsite I first went into into quarantine I was given a laptop to keep me busy with I was given a decent meal not just one, but a lot of food. I got, I got such a lot of food um, and, what it, and it was all good food, you know. It wasn't a lot of stuff that was just thrown in a pot and given to you like a, like a dog. And that's some of the experiences I've had in, in, in Strandfontein. I was taken to, to the doctor and I had my other, other medical issues also sorted out. Um, which you uh, also basically paid for. I was given given clean clothes and, and, and a lot of other stuff that, that made me feel human again. Um, before um, um, yeah. COVID-19, I felt like I didn't have any direction and suddenly I, I started having like a new a new hope basically for, for, for the future. I'm listening to your story and I'm always just baffled by the fact that people don't understand how systemic injustices are such a, a real thing. 
and that we're still debating the existence and the and the reality of systemic and structural uh, implications on the lives of people and not just individuals who make wrong decisions and, and and how people at the top and people you know like you ordinary ordinary people are affected by by individuals decisions but actually that there's structures in place and and I'm sure the people at the place where you were there were some genuine people who were doing you know genuine hard work and trying to make means with what they had in a system that was in itself not doing what it's supposed to be doing Thank you for your story, Rudy, man. I, I think this is such a powerful testimony to the witness of, of New Hope, but also to the witness of, of, of what God has been doing in your life, working behind the scenes, uh, being faithful to you, and you, in a sense, calling out to him. Michael, do you want to share with us just a key moment in your experience with New Hope? Yes, certainly. I can't comment on the microsite in uh, St. Peter's. I wasn't there. I can tell you, though, that St. Peter's on the Thursday night, we had our dinners. The meals were great. I really do appreciate that. What happened to me is I, I was at St. Peter's Square one afternoon, and then I was told, yeah, uh, if you can make your way to Paro, there's a job for you, folding cupboards. And so the story went, and you will be paid. And then I went to Paro. And I found the place, but what happened was there was lots of alcohol on the table and, and with the alcohol lying openly on the table, a lot of tablets like prescription meds, but meds that make you high if you, if you mix it with alcohol. And then, you know, Michael, help, help yourself, enjoy the day, you know, being an alcoholic. I got involved with the booze and then once the booze starts doing its work, I, I decided, well, well, let me try some of the polls. And uh, cut the long story short, at the end of the day when I left the guy, the job was never done. I ended up on one of the side roads in, in Paro. I was sitting on the pavement and it's now late afternoon, something to six already. People stopped their cars and they approached me and, and, and they said, Uncle, are you alright? And then they asked, what is my name? I uh, wasn't totally honest with them and then I, I couldn't admit, you know, why I'm sitting here and what I went through. I was taken to the hospital in Belleville. Uh, the people took a lot of photographs of me while I was sitting in Peru uh, on the side of the road on the pavement and they put it online. So yes, where Richard and New Hope comes in again, again, my friend. And I'm sitting in the hospital, I'm there about nine, nine, ten days. Who should walk in to come and visit me? Is Richard and James. So they came to visit me and obviously I burst into tears. I didn't expect them there. In Richard's visits and via the telephone, I would phone him, he would phone me. So I already knew a plan has been made. And then uh, I spent 28 days in that hospital. 28 days? I think it might have been longer. Oh, even longer. Okay. So now I'm here where I am now in Musenberg. I'm very much involved and I've got a lot of respect for uh, Richard and the new hope. Man, I'm, I'm just taken. And I, and, I, and I listened to your story in the beginning. I know people who have gone through what you have gone through, where family comes in, exactly the same story. This particular man called me so many times because I was quite close to the family who was doing this to him. And I actually don't know him, but what he knew was that I was a Christian and he knew that there was some kind of standard that Christians live up to. And, and, and he was holding me to that standard and he was saying, brother, you need to help me. And I think the, the phenomenal thing what I'm hearing about both your stories, you, Rudy, and, and Michael, is that 
I see the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of people who understand the implications of the Spirit breaking into the now and requiring certain things from us as much as we're waiting for that final regenerative, restorative work of God in the new creation, in that Christians have owned the fact that God is at work now. And for you guys to see that and recognize uh, the work of God in the lives of, of ordinary people. And I want to say thank you to you, Richard, for just being a vessel. But at the same time, I want to thank the, the God that you serve for allowing yourself to be in that space, for allowing him to speak to you. Thank you guys for holding Christians up to that standard. You guys didn't share uh, much of your own testimony. Is it all right if we talk a little bit about our faith journey? I kind of forgot to add it in. Oh, but by all means. I wasn't raised in a Christian home or anything like that. For me, it was basically through friends and community showing showing me what it means to live a Christian life that I started going to church as a as a teenager. Um, fairly early in my kind of journey through the church was volunteering at the Haven Weinberg Homeless Shelter. And so I, I don't know if I would have had that influence really if it wasn't because I, I was at that church that was, that was going there. Even though my grandmother wasn't a Christ follower. She was part of the the Black Sash. She was a resistance artist and she was a a big influence on me in terms of fighting injustice on a a worldwide global level or at least a, a national level. That combined with my faith, seeing how Jesus, he moved towards people that were on the on the brink of society, people seen as not part of the rich elite. That was also like a massive influence for me in my faith journey. When my wife and I were exposed to a church like St. Peter's, who were running this community dinner, where they considered the community dinner not as a ministry of theirs, but as a community of theirs, as a, as a congregation, part of the lifeblood of, of the church. It wasn't something that was outsourced. Oh, those people, they provide dinner for people on the streets. No, this is like that community is part of our community we together and that was like a big changing point also in my faith journey where i saw the church intersect with the lives of people who are living vastly different lives to me and i, I love that i thought this is what heaven is going to look like one day it's not going to be some kind of whitewashed middle class suburb up in the sky it's going to be a multi-ethnic, multicultural embodiment of of what what it should be, you know. And I thought St. Peter's was a little slice of that on earth. I don't know how to explain it, but I, I, I know I know the Lord. I try to get to know him better. The more I try to get to know him better, the more I um, feel that he, he is like real. Getting to know him better also like makes my eyes open to stuff that that, that I feel is not really the Lord that I kind of know because it's, there's, there's certain things that, that you experience, especially when I, when, when, when I was on the street, that I, I know that is there, um, that I, f- I felt that closeness, I felt that safety, I felt that protection. And sometimes when I look at, at, at churches or, or places of worship, then it's, it's almost like the homeless person doesn't, doesn't really know or can't really understand that I was able to actually just express myself at one of the community dinners um, that I went to at St. Peter's and I actually told this um, this guy that was 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 serving us that um, he wanted to make conversation and I told him that I don't feel like talking because I'm still I'm still work and that kind of thing and that's why I'm here because I'm hungry and from there the, the relationship started because I could explain to him how I felt I just thought 
if I can speak to the Lord of, uh, and he knows how I feel, then I must be able to speak yeah. to, to, to this bra. And um, up until today, we still talk about, we still have Bible studies so now and again. And whenever I see him, I still remember the day when I actually told him that I'm Dukharuk, I can't really speak about it now. It started a way for me to, to actually be more truthful. That's what I, what I enjoy about the house as well, where, where we are now. Um, we are able to, to actually explore our faith and to actually be able to, to get to know the Lord on our own terms. It's not like it's enforced on you. The atmosphere in the house is, is as such that you actually want to know why does this guy, like for instance Richard and his wife and, and, and the other volunteers that comes here, um, there are people that actually knows the Lord and they don't enforce it on us. It's just that there's something about them that you actually also want to explore, you also want to have. And, and That's great, man. That's fantastic. Mike? My journey with God, I've written down many times. Most of the time was alcohol related. I get it now, you know. I, I really do get it now. Jesus was talking to his father. Give Michael enough time. Michael is coming. Just not there yet. But he's on that journey. Just give him enough time. I missed a big time and yet he still forgives me. I'm living proof that he does answer prayers. I mean, if I look what I've got now from coming from outside, I have nothing. We serve a, a loving, loving God, a, a God who forgives us. If you are struggling in your faith, or you, no matter what your circumstances are, I always say, all you have to do is just look up. What you see above you, you cannot go and buy in any shopping mall. It's God's creation above us. The beautiful blue sky, the sun that shines on our skin, the wind that blows against our body, he blesses us with rain. Do I serve a loving God? Yes, I do. Do I love him? Yes, I do. God is faithful, man. He, he knows each and every one of our hearts. And, I, and I'm grateful that you are with, with guys who, who've walked with him and can testify to his transformation and his transforming work in their lives. I know that out of the microsite at St. Peter's, uh, a new business venture was started. Uh, can you tell us just briefly what that is about and how people can get behind that? As you, as you move from there, maybe can you, can you speak to the, the issue of churches as well? What you've noticed, St. Peter's, and what kind of influence they have been and how that has challenged you about how churches can use their own properties for, for gospel good. It, was, it became very clear in the early days of the microsite that there wasn't much to do. I mean, being in a nationwide lockdown, one couldn't leave, uh, one was stuck indoors. We managed to like kind of organize a TV and radio, but it, gives you, it only gives you so much to do, you know. There's only so much TV you can watch yeah. and, and radio you can listen to. So we then asked a whole bunch of volunteers, does anyone know any skills that one can come and teach? And one of the guys, a guy called Johnny Martin, he, he said, I know woodworking and I would love to teach the guys how to do woodwork. He came in, he brought some, some wood supplies, some tools, uh, taught the guys how to make a planter box. And so we made a couple boxes, a couple of the volunteers were interested in it. And we thought to ourselves, you know, why not sell these? So we put a couple of them up on Facebook and they sold like within a day or two. And so we said to ourselves, okay, this is brilliant. This could be something we could make some money off and everyone can keep busy. And so we said to all the residents, this is an opportunity where we can guarantee you some income every month. And what we'll do is regardless of whether we sell the planter boxes or not, we will guarantee you a monthly stipend. Then we converted this back garden shed 
into a little workroom. We got given some tools for free. We ordered a whole bunch of wood and all the guys split up into pairs and took a different day, uh, Monday to Thursday, and started making the planter boxes. And we then started advertising it. Within the first two months, we had sold over 50 planter boxes. We knew that we had to continue it when we moved to our new house. And so we rented a a workshop here in Musenberg, about 500 meters down the road from the house. And that's where the guys then work um, one day a week. And then we sell the planter boxes at various different markets as well as online. And that's how the guys make a stipend. It's really imperative that one receives dignity through work. It's amazing how much um, self-respect one can earn by working a, a day job, by working, you know, getting up in the morning, going to work, working hard and coming back home. It fulfills us. No one is, is kind of excluded from the work program, but the work-based program has enabled us to not only keep busy, but then, as I said, give dignity to the guys while they're, while they're working. How did you guys move from where you were to the, the microsite, to the house where you, where you are now? How did that happen? We knew that our time at St. Peter's was going to draw to an end. We, couldn't, we can't stay in a church hall forever. Eventually, the church is going to need their hall back. And so we did a fundraiser to try and find, well, to try to raise money to put down rent for a house somewhere. And while we were fundraising, a, a rehab called Ikande contacted me and said, we've got a sober living house in Musenberg, which currently is unoccupied. We've just got staff members living in there because all the people that usually come live in these houses are from overseas. And, you know, they were charging quite high international rates for the sober living house. And they're like, we love what you guys are doing. We want the house to serve this purpose. We're paying off a bond, but all we want is just for our bond to be covered. Um, we don't want anything more than that. And it's fully furnished. There are two beds in every room. There's a double fridge, deep freeze, nice TV wow. in, the, in the lounge. It is quite a zhuzh house. You know, we're living in probably what is easily a three million rand house. And we're thankful to, to that rehab who bought into our vision of what we're doing and said, we want this house to continue to serve people who are trying to break free from addiction, trying to break free from the streets. Um, and so you guys can, can move in. Musenberg is a nice community, you know, it's, but it offers that peace and quiet that one uh, might struggle to find elsewhere. And it allows us the space to, to focus on recovery, to focus on our programs without much interruption or without much distraction. How your stories intersect and how they, how they relate is just so beautiful because it, it's, it's the story really of South Africa, isn't it? There's structural injustice, there's past, there's family, there's individuals whose lives are intersect, lives have come together. And these things didn't just happen. There's a past that, that links all these stories. And there's a reason why we don't see a lot of what I see in front of me. With you, Richard, with you, Rudy, with you, Michael, you guys in one room, coming from completely different worlds, we don't see that very often. I, I want you guys to share, what would you want to say to listeners? What do you want to say to, in particular also, I want to come back to this idea of churches. What do you want to say to individuals, to our listeners, but also what do you guys want to say to churches and how churches can come alongside the vulnerable and how individuals can come alongside people living on the street and just be a witness? and be, be a different kind of presence in the lives of people. I'm going to start with you, Michael. Uh, some of them wouldn't even give you the time of day. Uh, they get to know you maybe as, as a member or someone who, who 
comes to the church services regularly, but outside it's a different picture. They recognize you and then they just carry on walking as if they've never met you before. But inside of the church, they've actually greeted you, told you to stay behind for coffee, shook your hand. But outside the church doors, it's a different story completely. Churches have got for a lot of way to go. With regards to the down and out, so to speak, homeless guys. Yeah, I agree with, 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 with Uncle Mike that even though churches, they do a lot, but there's still a lot to be done because I remember um, me and Uncle Mike used to sleep in, 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 on the church ground, on, in, in the churchyard when the, the church hall was standing vacant, was standing empty. And one of the guys that was with us, um, um, Neville, um, he was also sleeping with us at... Um, in, in one of the churchyards um, and we, we had a conversation about why is the church were building um, empty but we're sleeping in the, in the churchyard, that kind of thing. So even though the church, some churches do, has done a lot, there's this, I think there's also a lot, a lot of things that can still be done. So, so churches like need to like be like more uh, genuine, more innovative um, when it comes to how we're going to, to like help the vulnerable and the needy. If, we, if we're living for the glory of God, then obviously the, the church all can also most like be used for the glory of God um, 24-7. Certain things is just like not used to the best, in the best way. I'm always reminded of pieces of scripture like the rich young ruler and when Jesus said, you know, it's, it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, you know, everyone knows. And it is incredible how much we are tied to material wealth in our country, in our world. I think the church really struggles with that as well. We struggle with the notion that if I open up my church hall, there's a chance that it's going to be wrecked, you know, or there's a chance that it's going to be left dirty, or there's a chance that we'll let people in and they won't leave. We're almost far more concerned at protecting our buildings than we are at protecting our people. I feel like the church has a lot to learn when it comes to protecting their building over protecting their people. There's a lot that that needs to change contextually where buildings are left vacant for six days a week and only used on a Sunday. Other parts of, of churches which can be used, the church owns a lot of land in South Africa, yet it doesn't seem to be used uh, much for redemptive purposes. And it is the small moments where we see a little bit of a glimpse of heaven on earth where a church let us use their hall for five months. Individuals are giving selflessly, where they're opening up their homes, where people are pouring out their time and their energy into helping a, another brother or sister. I love this quote. Religion is a set of answers to life's big questions. So whatever massive question you're wrestling with about life, religion seeks to answer some of those questions. Now, in my life, I've often made that very philosophical, very theological, some kind of life crisis that people run into. People don't just have concepts in their minds that makes them question about God. Things happen to people that make them question the love of God, that makes them question whether there is a God, what that God is like. We tend to run to the question instead of to what has happened. And I find it so interesting that James comes and says that religion that God our Father honors, he says, is loving the widow and the orphan, the most vulnerable in our community, in any given society. And we have Christians, we have such a unique way of escaping that when we say that, no, but Christianity is different. Christianity is, is a relationship with God. It's not a religion. It's a relationship with God. But then 
you look at how he defines religion, he says it's relationship with the vulnerable. If you love God as Father, if you had relationship with Him, here's how your relationship will work out. Here's how your religion will look. It is love for others. We miss the, the structural implications of that. A family is a structure. Widows and orphans belong or belonged to that structure. And we need to come alongside structurally those people. I think we need to think more broadly and more intentionally, more holistically as we think about loving people, especially with our buildings, with the stuff that we have. We need to ask ourselves, how does the Lord want us to, to use those structures? Just tell us a little bit, Richard, how people can come alongside the work of New Hope and where they can get hold of you. There are lots of ways where you can support New Hope. Um, the first one is just simply a donation towards what we're doing. And if you resonate with our vision, if you understand what we're trying to accomplish, you'll understand that it, it takes finances in order to pay the social worker salaries, in order to pay the rent for the house, in order to pay for the various different aspects of the program. Support our work-based program. Buy one of our planter boxes, buy one of our pieces of macrame that we make, buy some of our seeds that we package. There are various different ways where you can support us and actually get something cool in return. Um, and then the last way to support us is to volunteer. Um, why not come and help cook a meal in the house or help with our work-based program? Or maybe you want to come and take all the residents for a hike up the mountain or go watch a movie or something cool like that. We would really enjoy those types of volunteers to come into the house and help out here. And the best way to contact us is to just go through our website, which is www.newhopesa.org. And you'll see that there's a link to our planter boxes on our website. Otherwise, check us out on Facebook and Instagram. And you can also come visit us at the Bluebird Market. We trade there on Thursdays and, and Fridays um, in the evenings. And then we trade on Sunday, the whole of Sunday at the Musenberg Flea Market by Sunrise Circle. Thank you for being with us, Richard and the guys from New Hope. It was so lovely having you guys with us. We'd love to see you guys again, hear from you guys again. But thanks for kudos for joining us. Goodbye. Thank you for having us. Thanks very much, David, for, for hosting us and um, for allowing us to come share our story. And thank you for Yellow Mensa and what you guys are doing. As always, you can follow us. Uh, on Twitter or Ismambano on Facebook. Get involved in the discussion. Give us your comments, your feedback. If you found this helpful, please share this with your family, with your mensa. Like, comment, share. This audio was produced by Exilic Music. You can find them at www.exilic.co.za. I am your host, David, signing out. Say, you got work to do. <laughs>